This episode of The Protocol is sponsored by the Algorand Foundation. Dive deep into the blockchain realm with The Protocol podcast with Coindesk founding editor of The Protocol newsletter, Brad Count, and tech journalists, Sam Kessler and Margot Nykirk. They unravel the intricate technologies powering cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, one block at a time. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hello and welcome to the Protocol Podcast. I'm Brad Cowan here with my co-host Margot Nykirk. Our other co-host Sam Kessler is down covering the SBF trial at the federal courthouse in Manhattan, so he will be reporting from there later in the show. And now for exciting conversations on the latest news and developments in technology behind crypto and blockchains. Let's get to our first segment here, Margot. Israeli crypto firms scrambled to deal with war in between the sirens. Wow, what a story, Margot. I mean, really, a lot of pretty serious reporting here by you. Tell us, how did your journey on this story begin? Yeah. So I think what's maybe set up some of the events that's happened over the past few days, but uh, Israel and, and Hamas, which is a terror group operating out of the Gaza Strip, went to war on Saturday. And I think that's consumed a lot of the media. And that's also affected many sides of or in different industries, including the crypto industry in Israel. And so I wrote this story about how different crypto firms are dealing with the fallout of war, because this is, I think, not something that a lot of countries experience necessarily. And so I spoke to some sources. I think the main takeaway is that there's a lot of reshuffling when it comes to employees that work for these crypto firms. In Israel, they have this mandatory military draft between the ages of you go when you're 18, for women it's two years, and for men it's three years. And as a result, you are also called up as a reserve in times of, of need. And this is one of those times. So a lot of young folks who work in crypto and work for crypto companies in Israel might be called up by the army to leave their jobs to go back out like back out of civilian life into military life but also there's been a, a lot of activities and aids campaigns set up by the crypto industry to sort of use their resources to help Israeli civilians and so one of the larger campaigns that came out of of Israel over on Monday was this this organization called Crypto Aid Israel where people can donate their crypto to this wallet and that crypto will be used and cashed out for necessities for for families and civilians who are affected by the war. I believe it was the cryptocurrencies that they accepted were, were Bitcoin, Ethereum, and USDC and USDT. Let's talk about Israel for a second. Sure. You know, I mean, it has this reputation as a tech hub. Um, and now we're talking about it as kind of a crypto hub. I mean, there are quite a few uh, companies that are based up there. Do you have a sense of kind of how does how does the Israeli uh, crypto scene fit into kind of the overall Israeli tech scene? Yeah, I think crypto scene is just like a lot of uh, technological innovations like fit into the overall tech scene. There's a lot, you know, it's been, it's known as the startup nation. I think you just said that uh, there's a statistic that 14% of the workforce in Israel is high tech jobs. And so there's a lot of innovation that's happening, uh, like Starkware, the Layer 2, is is a company that's based out of Israel. Collider Ventures is a big uh, VC firm that invests in uh, crypto uh, Web3 Israeli companies. This is a growing field in the Israel tech scene. I, AI is also like a really, you know, happening place. But for the sake of Coindesk, I think we focused 
on the crypto scene specifically. And then there's, of course, a lot of smaller startups. I talked to a startup called uh, Addressable, which is a bunch of professionals that have cybersecurity experience and big data experience. And they use those techniques that they picked up either in previous jobs or in the military to decipher or help marketers, Web3 marketers know their audiences despite like pseudonymity and anonymity. So there's a lot of people who have used sort of their military and their civilian background to join the crypto space and create these crypto innovations. And Margot, reading your story, there was a line in there that talked about how there were not severe business disruptions that were reported in terms of, say, internet outages or electricity outages. But obviously, people in the crypto industry in Israel just dealing with a lot personally, right? What are some of those challenges that that, that you heard about that people experienced? Yeah. So I think a lot of my sources have told me that on the one hand, Israel is sort of used to war and conflict that, you know, a lot of these homes already have bomb shelters, safe shelters where if rockets are and the alarm sirens warning citizens to take cover, that they can go into these shelters that are built into their homes. But I think what makes this round different is just like the severity of of the fighting. All my sources were telling me they all either know someone who has been killed or has been kidnapped or is missing. And so a lot of the sources then have found ways to sort of support one another. On the one hand, they're moving to remote work so that they can accommodate those that might need to serve or want to volunteer, donate blood, help provide meals for soldiers on the front line or, and, and families that uh, you know have lost everything. On the other hand, there was also firms that said that working is sort of an escape for them from this harsh reality and it helps them take their mind off of things. So I think the industry right now in Israel is is really suffering mentally, and they're all giving each other space to sort of uplift each other and understanding that it might you might need to accommodate that for some people. You do need to lean into those feelings. And for some people, you you need to continue on life as is. That means working, then that's what they have to do. Margo, just staying here with this story for a second, but shifting a little bit, there have been reports that Hamas raised money in crypto, and that was how they were funding some of their activities. Uh, and there was a report that the authorities have, have moved to try to shut down some of those wallets. What's the latest on that? Yeah. So this isn't particular. I mean, this is news, but it's not particularly new. A lot of these um, terrorist organizations, Hamas, Hezbollah, they have turned to crypto in the past to to raise funds and to help them on, with their attacks. I think the report that we were referring to is a Coindesk article where where Israeli authorities have shut down wallets um, and accounts on Binance that may have used crypto to fund their accounts. I think the authorities, I, I can't speak specifically, but I think the authorities are definitely taking a harder look at this. Also, because crypto has now been along for longer, so. There's a lot of intelligence and expertise that have now gone in, uh, gone into understanding how these networks use crypto to funnel illicit funds. So that's still a developing story, and I'm I'm sure we'll be we'll be hearing more about that soon. Well, that's a really fascinating story, uh, Margo, that you've you've been following, and uh, thank you for reporting on that. And let's just switch to our next story we're discussing here uh, during this segment. This is the publication of BitVM. And, you know, it sounds pretty arcane, but it is apparently a play on Ethereum virtual machine, EVM, you know, which is sort of the framework that all the Ethereum blockchains 
a lot of the Ethereum compatible blockchains use, but this is Bitcoin we're talking about here. And uh, there was a, a, one of the, the core contributors to Zero Sync, which is working on various ways of using uh, zero knowledge proofs on Bitcoin blockchain, published this research paper. And in that paper, he essentially outlined the design or the blueprint or the, the plan for BitVM. And, you know, people were joking about it online. It's pretty complicated, pretty technical stuff. But in a nutshell, it's bringing smart contracts to Bitcoin, which is, you know, that is Ethereum's claim to fame. That That is famously, you know, they forked off Bitcoin and that was Vitalik's big thing, right? Is adding smart contracts and building a, blo- a whole blockchain kind of built around this idea that it would be a, a world computer. They call it Turing complete, you know, is the is the technical phrase for you can basically program it. And one of the stories here, Margo, is that the Bitcoin community is very careful and it, it they really do there's no central organization like there is with the Ethereum Foundation which provides a lot of leadership for well st- you, yeah. wait I will have to push back on that because <laughs> because the ethereum devs will actually will actually say that the ethereum Foundation is not at the center that it helps steer development so I have to chip in on that but there yeah. you go they do say that but I mean, with Bitcoin, I think there used to be a Bitcoin foundation, but there's not really anymore. And I mean, everything is kind of done by consensus, but they're very careful. So one of the key points about this paper, there have been various proposals to bring smart contracts to Bitcoin in the past and to bring this programmability. And of course, what you get with the smart contracts is you can build the the dApps, right? The decentralized applications. You know, just like you have apps on your phone, these are apps that are built on the blockchain. And and so Bitcoin, you know, could have that potentially. But the breakthrough here is that they don't have to change the code, you know, which is they call that the soft fork, you know, where they're, it's it's kind of an upgrade of the software. They can just kind of build it in. Margo, I'm curious. You read through this paper. What were some of your takeaways? Well, my takeaways was more from a high level that. Like you were sort of hinting at that there's this culture around Bitcoin that Bitcoin is only used as like a financial tool, right? But here we are talking about smart contracts on Bitcoin again. I mean, this happened about a year ago, right, too. There was another paper that was released about bringing smart contracts to Bitcoin. Ordinals happened earlier this year. That's like basically the NFT version of of Bitcoin. And, And some altcoins, right, on the Bitcoin blockchain have also peeped in. So I think it's really interesting that there's this dynamic that Bitcoin could be somewhat like Ethereum. I thought that was the most interesting coming out of this. And also from what I read, it, yes, it's a smart contract, but it uses sort of technology like optimistic rollups where it publishes or it computes its data off chain. So that's another interesting development to see how these technologies could become more alike and, uh, in, in the future. But I, don't, I have no idea if this is something that will persist. It was definitely an interesting debate to see online. One of the things that I was thinking about, Margo, is just you have all these different teams that are working independently, but they're very, they're paying very close attention to what everybody else is doing, you know, especially in the Ethereum world and kind of, you know, all the L2s paying attention to what each other's doing, but then also kind of maybe paying attention to what 
is happening in some of the other L1 ecosystems on the smart contract side. Well, clearly, Ethereum's also probably paying attention to Bitcoin. And here you have Bitcoin paying attention to Ethereum. Uh, you know, I mean, if you if you read through this paper, clearly a lot of the concepts come. I don't know if it's if it's a direct serial come straight from that or if it's, it's you know, they, these these ideas came up independently. But clearly in Linus's paper, he talks about the optimistic roll up is a, is a key part of the idea, the concept underpinning this innovation and separately zero knowledge proofs, which obviously have taken off like fire in the uh, Ethereum community. And I think that's that's kind of interesting. Well, maybe we'll have ZK BitVM at some point, you know, we'll have a ZK, ZK BitVM, just like how we have all these ZK EVMs. It is, I mean, it is a ZK, it is a ZK BitVM. <laughs> um, anyway, it's a, it's a technology just figuring out how to, how to get the, the thing out. BitVM, BitVM, it's, it's, you probably, we probably need to start practicing the pronunciation. Totally. Because we'll probably be hearing a lot more about it. Okay, with that, let's take a break. When we come back, we will have our Protocol Village segment where we'll take a deep dive into WorldCoin. A Q&A with Tiago Sada, the tech guru behind the orb. Ready to create the next Web3 unicorn? Go from concept to fully functioning dApp with AlgoKit. The all-in-one development package helps you get building on Algorand in less than 10 minutes. Let Algorand's advanced blockchain technology, lightning-fast transaction speeds, and instant finality be the rails for your next world-class project. Head over to developer.algorand.org slash algokit to download today. Welcome back. All right. We're going to jump right into our Protocol Village segment and this week's focus on WorldCoin. Margo and I had the chance to interview uh, a couple of weeks ago, Tiago Sada, who is basically head of product uh, technology and engineering for Tools for Humanity, which is the developer that's that's building WorldCoin. And uh, obviously, WorldCoin, a much better better known name and an even better known name is probably Sam Altman who is the creator of ChatGPT which has been a huge huge story uh in broader in, in the mainstream press in 2023 and coming into this year and um and everybody's talking about AI now and so a lot of people may not know, you know, outside of crypto that he's has this crypto project, although in crypto it's it's been pretty well publicized and it's also pretty controversial, you know. I mean, people in uh that one of the key features as you know, Margo is passing around this orb and getting people to scan their their irises as a form of of sort of biometric authentication. So anyway, you know, Margo, why don't I toss it to you? Uh, what were your What were your, some of your takeaways from this uh, interview with Tiago? Right from what you just said, that using the orbs to scan your irises as a form of authentication, 
that's gotten a lot of pushback, right? That there are some fears around um, what happens if other people can access your your orb data. But it was interesting because Tiago had said, we already do that when it comes to many different aspects in life. Like for him, he, you know, to get to have a visa to get into the United States, he's not a United States citizen. He has to, under his visa, that they do some kind of biometric scan. I thought it was interesting. I spoke when we spoke to him about Vitalik, the the Buterin, the co-founder of Ethereum, wrote a blog post on his skepticism of proof of personhood, which is uh, WorldCoin's user authentication system that might have some issues around centralization, security, what to do about this ORP data with the irises. And Tiago welcomed his his criticism. He actually said that he sends his blog posts to people who are curious about WorldCoin. So that was really interesting that, you know, there's this ongoing conversation between the WorldCoin folks and the the Ethereum folks about what this new system entails. I must say, I had not had a really deep, deep dive into the WorldCoin technology, you know, familiar with the project, generally speaking, but it hadn't really done much of a deep dive on the tech until until we started planning that interview with Tiago. But also he was at the uh, permissionless conference here in Austin uh, last month, and uh, he beamed in for that. But one of the things that I learned here, here it's called WorldCoin, right? Uh, it makes you think that it, it, just the name made me think that it was a, it was its own blockchain, kind of like Bitcoin or Litecoin, but it's just really, it's just a smart contract mm-hmm. on top of Ethereum, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was interesting. It's just sort of, you know, pretty big projects, you know, it's just a really just a decentralized app on Ethereum. And they also have various, they work with various Web2, you know, interfaces. They said, I was reading their docs uh, and they have an API. So it's not all, the whole thing is not blockchain. You know, it's just, that's a big part of it. You know, going back to our our, our first segment, they use ZK proofs mm-hmm. as part of the verification system. Again, it's just like ZK is really, you know, it's kind of in every conversation about blockchain these days, it seems like. Yeah. I, I also wanted to add, you mentioned that Sam Altman is sort of, because of his involvement with OpenAI, because of the growth of AI in and just pure knowledge of what's going on in the AI world and mainstream media has happened over the last year. That has created this also media attention towards WorldCoin. And and a lot of people are sort of wondering what's this connection between AI and WorldCoin. And I thought it was really interesting that Tiago said that, you know, the connection really here is that Sam believes in these new technologies and these new ways to authenticate users and proof of personhood is sort of at the core of that. And so he's and that's why Sam has sort of worked on this project to come up with with new ways to deal with these issues. So that was a really interesting take, I thought, about on, on Tiago's end on what's this connection between these two different projects. Yeah. You know, I also found that super interesting, Margot. He made the analogy to a CAPTCHA. If the question was, what is the connection between AI and this proof of personhood? And and basically, you know, it's if we're going to be living in this world where bots are our assistants, you know, and everything we do somehow we're using AI as our assistants or our tools or, you know, AIs are doing everything. And there needs to be a way of saying, okay, this is not a bot. You know, I'm interacting with this person. One of the things they talked about as a potential use case would be in in distributing aid. If you want to distribute aid equitably, let's say everybody gets a ration or or whatever it is, 
you want to make sure people don't claim it twice. And so, you you know, it's it, first, it, not only is it a person, but it's a unique somebody that I, that hasn't been here before. But to your point, that's just, that's the, in Sam Altman's connection. That is how WorldCoin plays into the eye mm-hmm. is, is that it's proving personhood as, as we said, versus just here's another bot. Mm-hmm. You know, just going back to your comment, Margot, about how it was just a chance to talk to this really interesting developer. And he grew up in, in Mexico and he told us that he was a robotics champion. His team in Mexico, they, they won like the world championship in robotics. And on the basis of that, he got a scholarship to study in the United States. And so then he went back and he was in actually in sort of TradFi FinTech, which is basically, you know, developing technology for banks. And he said he got really good at talking about why, you know, if he was talking to investors, venture capital firms or whatever, you know, he he had to explain why it was better to be in FinTech than crypto. Right. And so <laughs> Right. But, he was um, anti-crypto for a while, right? Yeah. 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 But then Ethereum converted him. He fell in love with Ethereum. Yeah. He still believes today that 80% of crypto is not going to pan out. Mm-hmm. It seems like something that a lot of people in crypto who actually work in this field might actually agree with, you know? I mean, or it's like the one, it's like a statement that everybody might agree yeah. with. What do you, what do you think, Mark? Yeah. I think a lot of us at, maybe at Coindesk and also, you know, in the ecosystem have agreed with that. Winter is here to sort of clear out all the bad actors. We have this FCX trial going on right now. Our Sam is away because he's covering the other Sam. That was really interesting and almost reassuring that that a lot of the projects we talked to have all sort of voiced the same thing, that we all sort of have that same opinion. Yeah, I don't think there's anybody, you know, who would disagree with Tiago that, you know, we're we're definitely... From that perspective, we're still in the very early innings of the blockchain story. I mean, mm-hmm. certain people might say they know who's going to win, but uh, nobody knows. No one knows. <laughs> it's a story yet to be told, and we'll be there to do that. Yes, yes. Every day, a little bit, a little bit more. Okay, now let's pivot to Sam Kessler in nyc down at the courthouse where uh sam on sam sam bankman freed is on trial and sam is one of the team of coindesk reporters down there every day hey everybody my name is sam kessler one of the co-hosts of the protocol podcast and i'm excited to be on for my first time even though it's our second episode reason why I haven't been here is because I've been on the ground covering the big Sam Bankman-Fried trial, where he's been charged, in essence, with using funds from his crypto exchange, FTX, and siphoning them to his trading fund, Alameda Research, to make a bunch of bets, investments, and so on, which ultimately led to the implosion of FTX and the loss of billions in FTX's customers' funds. I'm here joined by reporter extraordinaire at Coindesk, Danny Nelson, who's been covering with me. I'm a tech reporter and editor at the outlet. And, and Danny, a little bit about why we're you know interested in this in a, a tech 
angle. There was a big computer bug that's kind of at the center of this entire case. Essentially, what was happening was FTX, which internally had an accounting. You know, just a, a note here for listeners, it's, it's difficult for us to describe it. It's even more <laughs> difficult for the prosecutors, the defense, and I'm sure the jury to make sense of these two companies. They were so tangled up. It, it was a, it, well said. I mean, and it, it seems like it would have been a simple thing to program. Essentially, they did a poor job internally between FTX and Alameda of reconciling in their code how much money Alameda had in effect taken, but really borrowed from FTX. So FTX had something in its computer code which tracked how much money it was lending to Alameda and all of its other lenders. Alameda, though, had a special relationship with it. And a lot of those funds, because of the size of Alameda's borrow position, ended up being customer funds. They were, in effect, borrowing against a line of credit that was larger than FTX was itself. You know, And once you start borrowing that much money, you're going to have to dip in to the funds from your customers, uh, according to the testimony. So, I mean, one of the really interesting things that we got to get into and why this is you know, fascinating from a, a tech angle is we've seen in a courtroom, lawyers and witnesses try to break down, as we've kind of alluded to here, some complex technical subjects and make them clear to a jury of 16, well, 18, um, 12 jurors and, and six alternates, regular New Yorkers. So, Danny, can you talk a little bit about what was, in effect, a co-review that we went through a few days ago? Well, we went through it a few days ago, and we keep returning to it with each witness that we find. We started with, I believe, Adam Yadidia, who was, uh, who I think he was an engineer on the website, if I recall. Mm -hmm. But he did have an understanding of the fact that there was this bug that for whatever reason, misstated how much money was owed between the two companies. From there, we went to Gary Wong, who was the CTO, who really understood it very well, maybe wasn't so good at explaining it to people, but walked us and the jury through what this bug was and how it hurt Alameda and FTX's effort to understand the position. And also, it alerted lots of people in the company to the fact that something maybe was a little bit amiss. And then now today with Caroline Ellison, we once again have returned to, although not in a starring role, the notion that this bug played some sort of role in the downfall. Now, one of the technical elements underscored by this trial when it comes to just blockchains in, in general has been the fact that FTX as a centralized exchange was very different from a blockchain-based company or blockchain-based decentralized application would be in how it operated under the hood. It wasn't just that, as we know, customer funds were being held by a private company, but the way that the software actually worked, whereby, as we've learned according to some witnesses, Alameda earned preferential treatment, such as the ability to trade more quickly than others and front run other users of the platform. Essentially, FTX was able to abuse its position as the builder of this software to prioritize and give preferential treatment and access to its friend, basically itself, according to the lawyers and witnesses, that being itself being Alameda, the sister trading firm. But Danny, maybe you can talk a little bit about this weird kind of 
other element to the case, which is Sam's investments and his deep tech investments and whether or not one specific investment is going to be allowable as evidence. Well, there's this question as to what is permissible in trial. We, we don't really want to get into here all the minutia of the legal uh, procedural bureaucratic arguments, but basically Sam, back in the better days for FTX and Alameda, made a pretty large $93 million investment in this AI company called Anthropic, which has turned out to be a pretty big deal. Uh, the company is now worth I believe a billion dollars on the private markets, which would have made that position of his worth quite a lot of money. The thing is, he never got the chance to see that gamble pay off. Yeah, I mean, a slight correction is I don't think the company is worth a billion dollars. I think the company might be even more than a billion dollars. It's FTX's investment alone that was supposed to be worth a billion dollars. Right. Yes, he basically 10x his capital, which in VC land is a home run that is earning a baseball bat in some firms. But the reason, rather, that the defense wants to bring this to the jury is because they want to say to them, well, look, Sam made a bunch of, some risky plays, and some of them, if fate had given him the chance to see it through, would have paid off in a way that would have made everyone a little happier than they ended up being. What the prosecutors are saying is, well, it doesn't really matter whether or not his risky bets paid off because he used customer funds to do it. And as soon as he uses customer funds, to, as soon as he commits that crime, it doesn't matter what follows after it. And so far, the judge seems to agree with the, the prosecutors. And, and you know, inadvertently, I think what, what you're talking about here, this anthropic investment, it, it has kind of allowed this trial to highlight one of the ongoing themes, I guess, we've seen in the crypto tech landscape and particularly the crypto tech investment landscape, which has been focused shifting to AI and mm -hmm. in a somewhat poetic turn, FTX's main value as a company at this point, or one of its main value um, assets as a company, is now an AI investment. Whether or not it's permissible as evidence in this case, I, I think it's a, a fun point to, or not so fun point in a crypto tech podcast it, to end it, on. It certainly is. Uh, and also a good point to uh, highlight that one of the things that Sam, the uber philanthropist, effective altruist, was most concerned about is AI and the proliferation of naughty AI that might kill us all. I think that Anthropic, though, uh, is one of those companies that wants to make a more ethical AI? Yeah, that's the idea. I mean, Anthropic's founders actually, if I recall correctly, came from OpenAI, its founder specifically, and the, the idea being that OpenAI was not open enough. Anthropic, though, famously has not been open at all, even relative to OpenAI, debatably. But anyway, that's for a AI tech podcast, not a crypto tech podcast. You know, Sam, if SBF's fate is that of the crypto industry, we might want to consider pivoting to our own AI podcast. We might, we yes. might. Anyway, that's it for episode two of our crypto tech podcast. All Thank right. you. I'm Sam Kessler, excited to join next week again. And Danny, yes. hopefully you'll be around soon too. That's it for us this week. Thank you for listening to the Protocol Podcast. You can listen to us weekly on CD Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Protocol, on Coindesk.com. See you next week. Thank you.